Well, hello again. Howdy. I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> uh, we're back here again. Uh, round three, it seems. So this whole divorce thing, um, still going on that. Yeah, there's a lot to say. What have we established so far? Divorce is bad. Bad. Amen. Mm -hmm. Yes. Except? If, well... We talked about in First Corinthians, like maybe if your unbelieving spouse initiates it, it you can let them go. Whether or not that means you're able to get remarried is another question, and we decided we didn't know. Okay, uh, that's the second conclusion. Firstly, divorce is bad, right? Uh, back to the Matthew thing, back to two weeks ago, which was uh, like two hours ago at this point. Um, back to the Matthew thing, divorce is bad. Mm -hmm. um, do not initiate it. You technically can if you make a lot of exceptions and a lot of assumptions and are willing to own up to your uh, choices on Judgment Day. Um, you technically can stand up to God and say, well, uh, I just wasn't willing to do the thing that you were always willing to do for me. So be careful with it. And then we talked about the, the Corinthians passage and that whole idea. Again, don't divorce. Now, if you are divorced, right, don't initiate. But if you are divorced by the other person, then that's all right. You don't have to keep pursuing them, or you can go off and get married. Not sure. Again, you said that one. Um, and so that's kind of a, an open question. But still, don't divorce. Mm -hmm. That's the... That is the general rule, and it's a general rule that applies in every specific area unless you're willing to take your fate in your own hands so be careful all right mm -hmm. where do we want to go this week um how about the old testament why because god is consistent and he hates divorce in the old testament too oh where does that idea come from malachi malachi chapter two and that's where we're going to start this uh this evening morning whenever you're listening to this that's where we're going to start this episode even though we're two minutes in already. Um, because ultimately, God hates divorce. And I know this, this passage is not exactly about the concept of divorce in general. He has like one specific application here, but it still applies to the concept of divorce in general. I mean, he just, he just straight up says, I hate it. And so we'll look at that in just a minute. Um, actually, we'll go ahead and look at it now. Uh, you want to read verses Malachi 2 verses... Uh, my favorite number 16 just 16 just 16 15 and 16 but not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit and what did the one do while he was seeking a godly offspring take heed to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. All right. Uh, in verses 13 and 14, God has a complaint against Israel. Why does he have a complaint? Because they're dealing treacherously with the wife of their youth. She is your companion, your wife by covenant, in verse 14. But you're dealing treacherously. What are they doing? God says, I hate divorce. I assume they're divorcing. I would assume so, too. And so, 
hey, don't divorce, don't cover your garment with wrong. He associates those two ideas as well as the idea of dealing treacherously. Don't do those things. They're bad. They're evil. Um, God is not a fan of it. So um, to cap off the Old Testament, God says, stop divorcing. Divorce is bad. Don't do it. Um, again, there's that one exception in Matthew. If you want to try and make a ruling on that one, um, I would not personally, but you are, it is your prerogative to take your fate into your own hands and, uh, good luck on judgment day. That's all I'm going to say. So don't do it. Um, that's pretty bad, but what happens today, nowadays? Uh, what's the, what's the big, like kind of divorce question nowadays? Well, there's this one, honestly, very obscure scenario that at least the congregations that we grew up in take a stance on. So imagine you're, you're not a Christian. You get married. You divorce for a reason that God would not have had you divorce. Any reason. You're still, you're still not a Christian. You get married again, and then you become a Christian. The churches that we grew up in tend to say that you should get divorced because God would not have had you marry that person that you're married to now. Yes. And, so, and that's what all of this has been building up to. Yes, that was, the, that was the kind of the real question that started this whole conversation was basically what about coming to God in... A, a, a bad marital state. Um, this is not coming to God in, like, as you're dating in a relationship that you shouldn't be in. This is after you were married a second time. Um, you have or, made promises. Or a third or a fourth, you've made promises before the state and theoretically before the eyes of God that you are married and now you are husband and wife and you're living happily and you convert to Christianity and the church then requires you to divorce your spouse to be baptized and part of them because your marriage is bad. I have. I don't know. I don't know that I've experienced this personally. I've just heard of stories. So I don't know if they were the like person or couple was like required to divorce by the church or if it was more like the way they were taught it, they felt bound by conscience to do that mm -hmm. i don't know if you have more experience um i've i've heard of a couple situations i'm not sure uh i i would know people who i could talk to and ask if it happened in the particular church i'm thinking of a church that i've been part of or if it's just stories that they have heard um but i've heard of situations in which that ultimatum is kind of given before the people are even baptized, that in order to be baptized and to be faithful to God, you have to divorce this person um, because of these reasons. And the person's like, I don't think so. And the church kind of denies them baptism. I believe I've been part of a church where that has happened a couple of times, like, like two or three times. So... Again, uh, I may, I, I may, it may just be stories from other people that have heard those things, but I think I have actually been part of churches where that has happened, 
I think two different churches, one of them, it happened twice, one of them it happened once, I believe. Interesting. Yes. Oddly aggressive. And so my stance on this, full clarification, my stance on this, I think that's not good. (laughs) I'm, I'm saying it nicely. I think that that is a misuse of scripture, and I think that that is ignorance of the larger picture. I think that a lot of times what we do is we zoom in on details and we pay attention to a bunch of details in these little sections and then we forget to actually link them to everything else. And God so, does hate divorce. He does hate divorce and that is that is one particular detail. How does it play into the picture, right? How does it come into the tapestry? He hates divorce. He technically allows it. Okay, how do those two balance? Guess what? He technically allows it. He does not like it. He does not want you to do it. And so those things balance in such a way that would incline you away from divorce. We forget. And so we incline ourselves to allow divorce in those situations while forgetting that God really says no. He unofficially says no, but he, he really pushes back on that hard because he doesn't want you to do it. Um, that's where I stand, and I, part of that is probably in reaction to hearing about these situations and knowing that I've been part of groups where these things have happened and people have not been allowed to worship and have not been allowed to become Christian and have not been allowed to be part of God's family because of, I think, a misreading of Scripture. And that's probably solidified my stance on some things, Mm -hmm. which is why I get a little bit excited. Not triggered. Triggered has a bad connotation. I get excited passionate heated in these debates because i just i think there's a better way to understand these things because at its core god created marriage at its core god hates divorce at its core god wants forgiveness and god wants you to work together um and so i just don't see how he could recommend divorce and that's really what malachi 2 comes down to i have a a little note on it here. God hates divorce. When would he ever command it? Right? I don't think it made sense to me. Can we divorce? Uh, are we allowed to divorce? You've heard it said you were, you can give your wife a certificate of divorce. And then what does Jesus say? He said that because of the hardness of your hearts. He said that because you guys were faulty. He said that because you were not good enough. And so he made a technical allowance because you're bad people. Don't do that. <laughs> right? That's Jesus's pushback. Don't do those things. And so why then would God turn around and command divorce? I just, I don't see it happening. I've talked a lot. What, do you have? what thoughts do you have? Um, I think you've pretty much gone over. We really, we have the same stance. I don't have as much personal experience with it growing up in the congregation that my family went to I think there were a couple members who like had become Christian like after they had divorced and realized they couldn't get remarried but I don't think there was like they just Mm -hmm. like you know they had been doing whatever and then they became a Christian they were like unmarried at that point and came to the realization that God would not want them to get married again. Were they married before? Were they a married couple before? 
no this was like a single person like he okay. had yeah. been in a relationship mm -hmm. but when he became a christian he realized he was like you know yeah like i messed that one up and like that's it yeah i think that's so accurate. that was very uncontroversial yeah if you're unmarried if you're uh, a widow or a widower don't remarry <laughs> that's the advice um and so yeah if you were the one who walked away um he who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery mm -hmm. um and so there's that addition in matthew 19 that i don't think we even touched on a couple episodes ago uh it's not necessarily the divorce that's the sin. I think the divorce is definitely part of the sin, but the ruling is if you divorce your wife and marry someone else, you commit adultery. And so to be safe, don't marry again. Um, mm -hmm. That is, that's a fair judgment in that circumstance. So while I agree with you, I just haven't personally experienced anything like this. I've definitely heard stories of like, mm -hmm. Oh, like these people became a Christian and realized like God wouldn't have wanted them to get married when they did. So they like divorce each other and our neighbors, mm -hmm. which always struck me as a bit odd. But these were like glorified stories almost. Not like mm -hmm. they were fake, but like when they were told to me, they were definitely portrayed as like, look how godly and dedicated these people are. And while that would take a That's lot true. of dedication, especially since like they had a good marriage, I just don't think that that is the most glorifying thing they could have done with that dedication to God, but we'll get into that. Yeah. I appreciate the heart of those people to be fitting with their conscience. And, and what I will say is if your conscience says to do something, you should very likely follow it. Don't violate your conscience. That's just a bad idea, but also train your conscience. Um, and so maybe there should be a, maybe there should be a middle ground that we mm -hmm. can find there as much as I will find a middle ground on anything. So, so since, God hates divorce. Yes. And, you know, it's divorce really isn't, there's not a lot of situations around divorce talked about in the, in the New Testament. There's not mm -hmm. a, a lot of like, I guess, narrative around divorce. Yes. So. And we'll get to that in just a second. I have another point I want to bring okay. up here. Bring, bring she it, knows bring my it. segue. She knows where I'm going. And she's trying to be great and direct me down that path. But I will not be derailed. Um. The point of Malachi 2 is they're, they're just divorcing for no reason. And again, that, that point that Jesus brings up in Matthew 19, uh, the Pharisees say, can we divorce our wives for no reason? And Jesus says, no, absolutely not. Right? And so that's kind of the same pushback here in Malachi that God hates divorce. But why? It's because it hurts the other person. It's because it's hurting the wife of your youth. It's going against her. It's destroying her. And so... The point of not divorcing, right? Divorce hurts the other person. That's why it's bad. Um, other than God doesn't approve of it, it hurts the other person. How does a second divorce not hurt the other person? And how does it help that first wife? Does she now feel better that you have been divorced again, right? That you're now forced to leave a second marriage? Does that make her feel better? I don't know, uh, probably not, unless she's a horrible, vindictive person, in which case she doesn't deserve to feel better. And so, you know, that whole idea, the idea that you should divorce again, just doesn't make practical sense and doesn't seem to align with what God would indicate. Why not? 
Doesn't breaking one promise mean you should break your second promise? I don't think it does. <laughs> Personally, I don't hold to that one. Because uh, I think if you make a promise, you should probably keep that promise. And that holds in every situation except Jephthah, but we'll get there in a, in a bit. So, all right. Sorry, segue time. So, so um, Lauren was mentioning the little narratives, and you can go ahead. Go ahead and back to your narrative. Yeah, there's, there's not a lot of, like, just narrative about divorce in the, in the New Testament. So in looking for kind of examples to, like, hey, what did these people do? What did God want them to do? We turn to the Old Testament mm-hmm. back in Ezra 10. Ooh. I don't know what that sound was. Ezra 10. Mm-hmm. What a chapter. What's going on in Ezra? So, I guess, I don't know how many years ago, Judah got taken out of the land. They had messed up a lot. God had sent them prophets. They didn't listen, and they went into captivity. Yeah. The divided kingdom, when it split north and south, Israel did a bunch of sin, got carried off in uh, 722 BC. The they got destroyed, taken into Assyria. Babylon captures Assyria a little later. And then 605 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah has sinned enough that Babylon, uh, God sends Babylon in and they remove uh, the people starting in 605, ending in 586 or 587, if you count wrong, um, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, 586 is just the common date that I've heard uh, is when Judah gets taken off into Babylon. It might be 587. I don't really care. It's like six months difference. So anyhow, the people came back in waves. Well, the ones who, the Jews who returned to their homeland came back in waves, and Ezra was one of the people who led one of these waves. Mm -hmm. Nehemiah, the book Mm -hmm. after this, is also a person who led one of these waves. And he's based. But, he is based. But the problem that has come up as, like in the Old Testament, in the Old Law, God said, Jews don't don't marry outside of Jews. Like, don't marry with the nations around you. Marry Jews. Mm-hmm. And these Jews who came back did not have married non-Jews. They are bad people. To the extent, or I guess in Nehemiah it mentions that, like, they were marrying non-Jews and their children also, like, couldn't even speak their native language. Like they were almost entirely non-Jewish. Yeah. So this is we'll get we'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. The Jews have married people of the land, um, leftover Canaanites, maybe Assyrian implants for probably several of them. I'm sure that other peoples have come in in the meantime um, and shown up in their in their various cities. And so now Jewish bloodline is entangled with peoples of the land and unholy peoples, and they're all unclean, and bad things are happening. Mm-hmm. So, Ezra shows up, unless you want to... Cool, I'm in charge here. Yeah. Um, so, so <laughs> oh my. Ezra shows up in verse, uh, not verse, in chapter 10. In the end of chapter 9, he is, in, in all of chapter 9, he is praying, he is confessing guilt. Not that he himself has really done anything wrong. Ezra's pretty based. He's just like a really good guy who sincerely is trying to do his best. Ezra 7 and verse 10, I believe it is. He has set his heart to 
know the word of God and to study it and to teach it and to, um, to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra, a really good guy, trying his best, uh, repents for the sake of the people, and then runs into all of these problems. So Ezra 10, uh, if you want to read like 1 through 4, can I set the scene? Sure. Now, while, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept bitterly. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Okay, oh, so many things. Um, I'm a preacher, and uh, there are so many points you can pull out of this passage a lot of terrible things like i like how they call it his responsibility like he's yeah. the one that went and married foreign women yeah that's like the thing. this is your job man gotta get up and fix this but we'll help you like it's, it's your problem my friend it's like that and right that's the problem here is that ezra hasn't done anything wrong he's chill he's cool he's good the whole time and then he confesses just like Daniel does, he confesses not his own sin. He confesses the people's sin. He includes himself in that, but it's not his fault. And he's not the one who's been marrying the foreign women. But while... What? I like how you said that. It's, it just irritates me, right? And so Ezra comes in, and he's mourning, and he's weeping, and he's, he's confessing all these sins. And then this random Israelite shows up and is like we've been unfaithful we've married foreign women and now we're we have hope to um dedicate ourselves to god and kick all the families out and we and uh then uh, ezra it's your job to act on this which is verse four which is just like no it's not how how irresponsible can you get israel that you are disavowing your own job uh before the lord I also like how they're making a covenant with God to break the covenants that they made before God. Mm -hmm. Seems yes. a little bit ironic. Yes. And, and so you see here a people who has elevated the, this is going to sound weird, but it's elevated the written law of God to such an extent that it violates the intention of the law of God which is to work with your heart and to do the best you can and to aim yourself towards him and to just do well. And instead of trying to be close to God, they decide the best thing they can do is to violate the promises that they've made in order to be obedient to God, which, does this even work? How how would this even work, right? What what was the what was the original command God gave them? Don't marry foreign women. Okay, 
the command is don't marry foreign women. They have transgressed that command. They have married foreign women. And so what is the solution? Is the solution then to unmarry them? You can't do that. God has joined them together. You cannot separate them. <laughs> Can you unmarry someone? Yeah, that does kind of give the impression that they think divorce undoes marriage rather than breaking it apart. Like it's like backspacing. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's like a typewriter. Like there's no backspace. You can say something else. But you can't just, like, erase what you said. Yeah. They're trying to erase what they've done instead of taking responsibility for what they've done, which are two different things, right? Sin is evil, and, and if you think about the concept of sin biblically, we know that sin is evil, and we also know that we cannot undo it. We can be forgiven of it, right? We can go to God, we can go to the blood of Jesus and be cleansed from our sins, but we can't undo it. And it's not like it never happened. God promises he will forget our sins, but it's not like they didn't happen. And so this very idea that we can just erase what we've done and go back and, and, and forget and just everybody can move on. Um, no, <laughs> that's not true. That's not how sin works. And that's not how it has ever worked. And so they make this promise um, or they make the statement, we can do this. Uh, Ezra, it's your job. And then Ezra stands up, and he, 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 he agrees with them. And I love Ezra, but I, I don't think this is right, right? Ezra the priest stood up in verse 10 and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers, and do his will, and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives." And then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right, as you have said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people, and it is the rainy season, and we are not able to stand in the open, nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed gravely in this manner. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly, and let all those in our cities who have married, married foreign wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of each city until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. We have messed up so badly, Ezra. We need you to help lead us to fix this, to, to put away all the foreign wives. And then when Ezra says, all right, it's time to put them away, Israel says, actually, it's well, raining. Like now. It's cold outside. But I do like, like, the verse right after you stopped reading, verse 15, like, this was not wholly accepted by all of Israel. Like, mm -hmm. there was opposition to this. Mm -hmm. Whether or not that was good opposition, I guess, could be up for debate. Yeah. Yeah, um, and so that's really the question, is that Ezra the priest stands up and says, yes, you should separate yourselves. This other Levite, in verse 15, stands up and says, no. <laughs> right? No, you shouldn't. Um, Jonathan, whoever he is, Meshulam, whoever he is, and Shabbatai the Levite are opposing him. And so here's the interesting question. We make our judgments based on the idea that Ezra's pretty good, which is true. And I, I think it's true. He set his heart to study the law of God and to teach it and to practice it and, and teach the ordinances. And that's a blessing, and Ezra's doing his best. But that doesn't mean he's right all the time. And I think sometimes we read the story and we just assume that he's right. 
and I'm I'm not saying we should read the story and assume that he's wrong. But I, think I don't it know. It just takes discernment cuz not every example in the Bible is a good example. It does. Even from good people. Mhm. Yeah. Moses stellar except when he's not. <laughs> except uh when he denies that God knows that he can talk. And God's like, "Moses, get over yourself. I'm sending Aaron. Go ahead." And then mm-hmm. Moses ends up mm-hmm. being the talker most of the time anyway. Right? Well, so is there another passage that we can kind of temper this with? Because when you're unsure, if in doubt, the Bible is cohesive. It has one author who is God. And so God doesn't contradict himself. So when, at least when I'm unsure about a passage, I generally try and find these parallel passages mm-hmm. that can kind of help help me figure out what to do. Yeah, and that's a really good segue that I'm going to get to in just a minute because I have one other thing to say. Right, right. Uh, you're you're going where I want you to go, but firstly, God never weighs in, mm-hmm. which I think is important. In in historical accounts, a lot of times, and I'm just going to try to condense this to be as concise as possible. In the hist- in the law, God weighs in on what is right and what is wrong. In the histories, God rarely weighs in on what is right and what is wrong, and stuff happens, and we're told about the things that happen, and there are some things where we can say, oh, that was good, and there are some things where we can say, oh, that was bad, right? David uh, taking Bathsheba and committing adultery and murder, that was bad, and God weighs in on that one. He he does. Um, God never weighs in when David comes and says, uh, I'm gonna need to. I'm gonna need to buy this threshing floor to sacrifice to the Lord, and the man says, "I can give it to you for free." And David says, "No, I have to pay. Otherwise, it's not a sacrifice." God never weighs in on that, but I can pretty confidently say that that was David being good. That was David wanting to sacrifice, and it really shows his heart there, right? And so those things are that thing is good. What David did, God never specifically says so. And so while we read a historical account. Remember, God is not authorizing either side necessarily. It's up to us to determine which side is right. The other thing we have to notice about this passage is the Israelites say, hey, let our leaders represent us in verse 14, and then they they do, the exiles do so in verses 16 and 17. In 17, they finish investigating all of these men who had married foreign wives, and then it lists all of them out, and at the end in verse 44... All these had married foreign wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. And it never says anything about them actually excommunicating or divorcing or sending away these wives. Hmm. You might imply that that happened, and most people, most people, to be fair, do. And I, I don't think I've ever heard of anyone saying they did not actually divorce these people. But the amount of times Israel said, we're going to do this one thing, and then not do it, it happens in this passage when they say, let's send our wives away. Actually, it's cold outside. It's raining. Let's not do that. And so I think it's probably very likely that they didn't, especially with what happens uh, in the very next book. Thoughts on that, or or are we good? Yeah, no, I mean, I hadn't noticed that before, but Mm -hmm. Israel definitely has a track record of uh, not carrying through with what they say they will do. Yeah. Yeah. we will be faithful. We will keep all of the commandments. <laughs> Golden calf, 40 days later. 
<laughs> right? I mean, it was a month, a, like a month and ten days. A month days. and a third. Man, that was a lot of time. They were like, he's dead, Aaron. God replace him. He's dead. They walked up on the mountain. I've never noticed that before this last reading. But in in uh, Exodus like 24 or whatever, Aaron is brought up halfway on the mountain. Moses continues further up the mountain. And then Aaron just like stays there while Moses is on the mountain. And in chapter 32, it says the Israelites came up to Aaron. They walked up on the mountain while God is sitting on the top of the mountain. And they're like, bet that guy's not real. What if you make a cow? Well, I have heard, just to completely sidetrack us, that Mm -hmm. the golden calf was supposed to replace Moses and not God. Theoretically. Because, I mean, even for them, it seems a little bit... Make us a God that we can follow back to Egypt, though. Well, maybe they wanted a Moses that would listen to them instead of doing what God said. That is kind of true. Make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. They didn't want to listen to God, and they wanted to listen to Moses instead so that they'd be less scared so that they We'd would replace him. We want to listen to Moses, but we cow. want Moses to agree with us. <laughs> maybe this deaf and dumb gold cow will do better for us. And it let them party for a little bit. Until Moses was like, hey, fam, why don't you uh, execute 3,000 of them? And then they did, which is really cool. Um, that sounds weird out of context. Don't take that out of context. It but it was pretty just. cool. So anyway, Israel has a bad track record. Mm-hmm. Ezra is all like, the Israelites are fired up to get rid of their families. And then when it comes to it, they're not willing to. And then it never, it says they counted them, but it never says they actually got rid of them. And I don't know that they ever did, especially given the book of Nehemiah. Now, this is where we're going. This is the second half of this. And this episode, we're just going to do it in one. This is going to be long. Um, oh, well. But I have, I don't have very much to say on these things. Not really? fired up at all. I'm not speaking earnestly or with my heart. Yes, in you are. Any way, shape, or form. I just have thoughts that I'm interjecting. Such as the book of Nehemiah. In the Hebrew scripture, to my knowledge, Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. It is not we have we have divisions of first Samuel, second Samuel, first Kings, second Kings, first Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Those are all one book. Ezra and Nehemiah is also one book. Because it's just it's just the story of the return from exile, and so while we in America or like in the in the in the Bible in general, we have split these into two different narratives. They're actually one, and one thing you see is that those things that Ezra has a problem with at the end of the book of Ezra, Nehemiah also runs into in the end of Nehemiah. Now I'm not sure how many years it's been, but Ezra is still around in Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter eight, Ezra's the one who's reading the law. So he's still very much around. He's still very much active. This is within his lifetime. So it's within, like, what, like 20, 40 years at the most, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm guessing something like that. And Nehemiah runs into the same problem where everybody has intermarried again. I don't think that within the space of 20 to 40 years, everybody divorced their wives and then went right back to them. I think that they probably didn't get rid of them in the first place. And they've grown up in the few intervening years, and now Nehemiah is dealing with that same problem. And we get to see how he deals with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Do you have 
No, I guess that could help explain. Because in the end of Ezra, it's like, and some of them had even had children. And in the end of Nehemiah, it's like, and their children really didn't even know mm-hmm. Jewish? Not even Hebrew. 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 I was like, Jewish they, Aramaic. Yeah. Jewish Aramaic. I was like, they have a language and it's not called Jewish. It is not. Not quite. Um, yeah. yeah, I believe Aramaic is the general language and like Hebrew is the dialect. Okay. But that could make sense. So, yeah. like, this is continued, it's farthered, it's gotten worse. Yeah. It's a furtherance. I mean, Ezra is about rebuilding the temple so that you have a worship to God. Nehemiah is about rebuilding the city so that you have a place for the people of God. Ezra is about rebuilding the worship so that there are people, so that people are able to worship. And Nehemiah is about rebuilding the people so that there are people who are able to worship. Um, Ezra ends with the the divorce of young families who are only just starting and going into sin nehemiah these families have aged up a bit and now they're like grown children who should be talking but they can't really even talk the language that the jews speak which is a huge problem in itself Uh, maybe we'll touch on that in just a minute but it's just it's a furtherance i believe It, it it's furtherance all the way through so what does nehemiah run into he runs into the same thing. It's it's the same situation. Basically, uh, at the end of the book in Nehemiah chapter 13, it really starts, he's running into all sorts of problems in chapter 13, that there are foreigners, there are, there are sinners, there are heathens who are living in the temple, and that's a problem. And so he kicks Tobias out, and then he gets rid of everything associated with him. Got to clean out the temple, got to purify the worship of God. So he goes through all of that. And what else? What else is a problem? Tithes? No one's tithing. They're supposed to be tithing. No one's tithing. And so he has to fix that problem. And the Sabbath. No one's keeping the Sabbath. They're all coming in to trade on the Sabbath. So he locks all the merchants out overnight so that they can't get in and trade on the Sabbath day. Um, So he's correcting all of these problems. And then at the end of the chapter, he comes down to this marriage problem and uh, what's the problem, verse 23? Um, in those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. That's not good. And as for their children, half spoke the language of Ashdod. None of them was able to speak the language of Judah for the language of his own people. These are heathen children who can't understand the scripture who can't understand, they don't know what God's name is. Like, they're not exposed, they're not able to be exposed to Judaism. They just are incapable of that. And so that's a big problem. So how does he fix it? Uh, verse 25. Um, says, So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take your daughters for their sons or for yourselves. Keep Keep going, yeah. Uh, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused him to sin. Do we then hear about you um, that you have committed all all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joadah, the sure. son of Elishab, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. So I drove him away from me, 
Remember me, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Yeah. So what Nehemiah does, how would you describe what he does? He seems to just say, like, don't do it anymore. Yeah. Where do you see that? Well, he doesn't say, put away your current wives and your current children. He says, in the next generation, like, your sons and your daughters do not marry their sons and their daughters, and you cannot marry their daughters. Mm -hmm. So none of it seems to be like, you should retrospectively undo what you've done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nehemiah is, again, it's a furtherance of Ezra. It is the better version of Ezra. Ezra does some incredible work, and he does some good stuff, and he lays some good foundations. But ultimately, he establishes the temple of God, but there's nowhere for the people to live. And so as much as there is the presence of God back in that area, um, the people cannot live in his presence. There is nowhere for them to live. Nehemiah establishes a place for them to live. I'm not saying that, that it's more important to establish your own house before it is to build the Lord's, but I am saying that Ezra was trying things, and Nehemiah completes them. Ezra restores the worship, which is all well and good, but it's not worth much when the people aren't worth anything, and Nehemiah comes in and restores the people, and he restores the tithes, and he restores the Sabbath, and he restores the Levites, and all that jazz. And so Nehemiah really completes that. Ezra comes in, and the suggestion from Israel is we should divorce these people, and Ezra's like, okay, but then can't get, even get it to happen. Uh, at least to my reading, he can't get it to happen, or, or he does, and it inevitably all falls apart again. Nehemiah comes in, and his answer, again, God doesn't weigh in on this. Nehemiah says, remember me, oh my God, for good, at the very end of this book, which is just, I don't know if I did right or wrong, but Lord, I was trying. And so, <laughs> for whatever that's worth, Nehemiah throws that out because there is no judgment from God. Because what he tries to do is correct them where they stand, which is not unmarry all these people, but stop doing this mm -hmm. and educate your children and, and make them grow up in the right way. Solomon messed up because he married the foreign women. Why are you also doing this? So stop doing it. No mention of divorce, no mention of putting them away, but rather just stop doing it. Now, there is this one exception. A slight exception, which is Joida, one of the sons of jo Joida. The son of the high priest. Yes, the son of Joida, the son of Elishab, the high priest. So the grandson of the high priest. Mm -hmm. Son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, right? Which is, um, he has married into... Uh, Sanballat and Tobiah were like the major enemies of Israel who were trying to kill them in earlier in Nehemiah, especially in chapter 4, I think. Mm -hmm. um, Tobiah is the one who makes the crack about the fox and the wall, if I remember correctly. Sanballat is evil. The grandson of the high priest is married into that. And so Nehemiah cleanses the temple, which involves throwing out the daughter of a foreigner because foreigners are not allowed to live in the temple. Mm-hmm. Kicks that guy out of the priesthood. But it's like, but even in that circumstance, it's not like he's like, okay, man, you got to divorce your wife. He's mm -hmm. just like, you know, you chose not Israel and now you have to leave. Yeah. Levites, uh, priests are commanded 
to marry within Levi, or at least within Israel. Um, I believe it is within Levi. Is it? I think it's Levites marry within Israel, priests marry within Levi, or something like that. I don't remember. They're supposed to keep that bloodline pure. It's at least within the Israelites, if not even tighter than that. This guy has not. But instead of being commanded to divorce, he's just kicked out of the priesthood, right? Which is a bad consequence, but it's the consequence. Um, Not unmarriage, but rather uh, take your marriage and go somewhere else. We don't want you here. And so remember me, oh my God, because I've tried. They defiled the priesthood. I'm trying to clear it out. And so I purified them from everything foreign and appointed those duties for the priests and Levites, each in his task. I arranged for the wood at the appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Trying my best. Don't know if it's working or not, but I'm trying. And that's where Nehemiah leaves it because uh, he's trying. And so even if, right, even if if you think the example of Ezra commanding the people to divorce is good, then you have to affirm that the example of Nehemiah not commanding the people to divorce is bad. And I just don't see that. I, I, I see Nehemiah as better than Ezra in every way, unless Ezra is right and Nehemiah is wrong. Mm-hmm. But even so, Ezra really doesn't seem to accomplish anything. Um, and ultimately, even if Ezra's... Even if Ezra's thing worked for the second, it really didn't stick. It really didn't make any meaningful difference. It didn't improve anything. It didn't ultimately change anything because 20 years later, they're right back to doing the same old sin. So, is Ezra or Nehemiah right? I, I, I believe they're both genuinely trying their best. Mm-hmm. But I think Nehemiah is more in line with the situation and making more sense of it. It is optimal for Israel to have never married outside of Israel, but because they did, um, why not make the most of that bad situation instead of divorcing and just making everything that much more complicated and worse? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know a lot of people will not agree with that, but that's my take on it. Do you have a different take? Do you have any details to add to that take? Um, no. I think, I guess more generally, I kind of see that situation as you have made a promise that God did not want you to make. Mm-hmm. So what would God want you to do? And that actually reminds me, I don't know if this is where you're headed or not, but um, yes, you do. Mm-hmm. there's an Old Testament story. <laughs> you know exactly where I'm headed. I, I told her the plan before we started. Yes. Yet. The yes. last couple of times. I have times, said my piece on okay, this. Okay, you said your piece. Although so, I can always say more. Well, we should probably try and keep this under an hour. No. So, so much. <laughs> there's an Old Testament story um, in the book of Joshua. It's Joshua chapter 9. And this is a story where Joshua makes a promise that God did not want him to make. Mm-hmm. And then later on, we see kind of the fallout of yeah. how God decides to deal with said promise. Yeah, don't jump the gun too much. So so coming in to try and introduce that, God has, God has these commands, right? Do not divorce. 
mm-hmm. which is like the general rule. Uh, you can divorce for unfaithfulness, unchastity, whatever that means. Again, all those exceptions, I'm not going to go into that whole spiel again, uh, but you shouldn't do it because God said no, basically. And God modeled no, but anyway. So God has these expectations that you don't divorce, that you don't enter it. But then uh, Paul has these expectations in 1 Corinthians. Do not send your husband away. Mm-hmm. But if you do, you remain unmarried or uh, don't marry again. God has expectations in the Old Testament, which are do not marry outside of Israel. He never says, but if you do, right? And so we're kind of left in the dark as to what decision he would make. And so we're doing our best to try and read biblical passages and piece together an idea. And one of the things that marriage is, is marriage is a promise, a promise primarily to take care of the other person. What happens if we promise badly? What have, Are there ways in which we can make promises that God would not have wanted us to make? Yes, there are. If we marry again when we're not supposed to, when that would commit adultery. However, God still takes promises, any promises, even bad promises, very seriously. And so Joshua 9 um, Joshua here dealing with the Gibeonites. Um, this may well be a story that you know, and to keep this under an hour, we're just going to summarize it, I think. Mm-hmm. But how, how would you summarize this? What happens in the story? Okay, so Joshua has been leading Israel into the land of Canaan, and they've conquered two pretty powerful cities, and they've made a statement. The other cities are very scared. And so there was this people called the Gibeonites, and they came up with a really clever plan to try and trick Israel into keeping them safe. So what they do is they pull the classic, they get out old clothes, they get really old food, and they come up to Joshua and they're like, hey, we've heard that your God is really cool, and look at how far away we came just to try and make a promise with you, with your like your, your powerful nation, powerful God. God had told them not to make peace with anyone in the land, so they're pretending to be far away from the land so that they can come and make peace with Israel. Yes. So they're like, hey, we came from really far away. And Israel's like, how how we know? And they're like, well, this bread was warm when we brought it, but now it's old and crumbly. The classic trick, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And Joshua just... Yeah, Joshua does not consult God and totally falls for his plan. Hell for him. So he makes a promise with the Gibeonites. He makes um, a covenant with them to basically be allies with them. Mm -hmm. And then later on it comes out that they're actually neighbors. Yeah, they go away and then like the next city that Israel heads to (laughs) is Gibeon and they're about to kill him. And these guys walk out and are like, so... We might have lied a little bit, but we're safe now, and you can't do anything to us. So what does Joshua do? Well, Joshua and the leaders of Israel decide, you know what? You're right. We made a promise, and we're not going to break our promise, but you're going to be our slaves for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Again, he doesn't consult God here either, which is a shame and a travesty. Um, this This is the classic story where Joshua just forgets that God exists, um, which he's doing so well with Jericho and with I, and then falls off the cliff here. Um, Gets back on and does great through the rest of the book, but here is his big goof. 
uh, he doesn't talk to God about it. And so he makes this promise. Let's keep, we're going to keep these guys safe wherever they're from. Uh, it turns out they're from Gibeon, but he's made a promise. And so he doesn't ask God what to do with, about this. He just kind of says, fine, you're cursed forever. You're going to be slaves, which is not what God said. God had said no covenants with people in the land. God had said kill the people uh, who go into the land. There are various reasons for that. We can talk about that at a different time. But God had said, no, um, you get rid of these people. Joshua doesn't. Mm -hmm. Problem. So what do we end up seeing? He protects these people. He keeps them alive. He makes them slaves. Again, God doesn't weigh in on this, whether it's right or wrong. Uh, but we know it's against his commands. And so we know it's anti-God. But how does God feel about the situation? Does he honor that promise? He does. He does. We don't hear about it in this book necessarily. Nope. Not at all. So in Second Samuel, fast forward a bit, Israel has demanded that they institute kings. And they have established Saul as mm -hmm. the king. Yeah. After the period, Joshua settles the land into the tribes, judges, uh, a bunch of sin happens, different nations come in, God's judges free them, and they've been through that turbulence, and now there's a king, Saul, and Saul comes in, does a few things. Not very good things. Well, and one of those things oh. was uh, kill some Gibeonites. He did. Which... I mean, if they were just any other nation, it would be fine, right? Like, they're not Israelites. Yeah. And it should have been fine, right? So this is Second Samuel 21. Did we say that? Uh, so, sorry, I said Second Samuel. Second uh, Samuel 21 in verse 1. Listen to the language that's used here. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Uh, again, second king. David's the king after Saul. Uh, for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord which is one thing Joshua should have done. And the Lord said, it is for Saul and his bloody house. Why? Because he put the Gibeonites to death. That's why. That's why the famine is coming. So, verse 2, the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel had made a covenant with them. It's back in Joshua 9. But, notice this language, Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. I've never noticed that before tonight, before looking at it, like right before we came and did this. So Saul is so zealous for God's people that he wants to fulfill the commands of God, if I'm reading this correctly. He mm -hmm. wants to fulfill those commands and eradicate the Canaanites from the land. Gibeon... It's part of those Canaanites, not supposed to be in the land. God did not intend for them to be there. God said, don't make a covenant with these people, kill them all. And again, there are reasons for that. We can talk about that later. God laid down that law. Joshua broke that law, mm -hmm. made a bad promise. Saul comes back around and fulfills what Joshua should have done. But he broke the promise that Joshua made, and God curses the land because of it, because Saul broke that promise. Mm -hmm. Am I missing? That's that's why that is there, right? That's how I read it. It sounds almost like Saul is trying to retrospectively fulfill what Israel had failed to do in conquering the land. Mm -hmm. 
but at that point he is then going back on promises that Israel had made. Yeah. It was wrong of Israel to make those promises. It was wrong of Joshua to do that. Um, I mean, God doesn't condemn it there, but again, we can we know it because it goes against the laws that God made, uh, the commands that he gave earlier in that book of Joshua. But even though it's the wrong law, even though it's it's wrong for Joshua to promise, he promises it. And God upholds that promise. Now, did that count negatively against Joshua? I think so, right? Was that sin for Joshua? Yes. I, I absolutely believe that. God said so. Um, not there, but again, we can imply that. However, God still honored that promise. Mm-hmm. How does that relate to the divorce thing? This is like the classic example that, that proponents of kind of our position will, will pull because it's pretty relevant, but why is it relevant? So I, in this situation, Saul is trying to retrospectively undo a promise that shouldn't have been made. Mm-hmm. And that is fundamentally what people are doing when they say that you should like retrospectively undo a marriage that you shouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. And I think this passage is fairly clear evidence that that is not how God would like us to handle those situations. Yeah. That breaking a promise that you shouldn't have made is not the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Even bad promises are honored. God clearly honors them. Let's say you get married you decide, actually, I don't want to be married. You divorce this person. And then you marry somebody else. And then you come to God, right? I don't think God wants you to divorce because you made a promise to that second person. And even bad promises, even promises that shouldn't have been made, were honored, at least in this instance here, which is the the only time I can think of something like this. They're honored in God's eyes. And so even though it's bad, to initiate that promise, even though it's bad to initiate a second marriage when when the first one was broken by something you did, even though that's bad, mm-hmm. once you've done it, you've done it. And it's suboptimal, but you have to live with what you've done. And so I don't think it's right to force someone to divorce because that just doesn't seem to align um, with this. I don't think breaking another promise to God helps you to fulfill that first promise that you made and broke. Mm-hmm. I don't think that makes sense. That kind of perspective that you would need to divorce um, is essentially saying that God is expecting you, uh, that, that God views the act of marriage, the, the act of like continuing in a marital relationship as a sin, which he does not. He says that remarriage is a sin. He doesn't say that living a remarried life is a sin. And so while it is evil to start that relationship after you've broken the first one, while it is evil to go down that pathway, I don't see evidence for um, breaking the promises and removing the pathway and trying to just backpedal on everything you did because you can't erase it. Um, Mm -hmm. And just... Breaking more promises does not fix the fact that you were unfaithful in the first place. Yeah. 
most people will try to parallel this uh, this issue and say, well, if you're a homosexual and you come to God, then you would break off that marriage because that's sinful. Uh, that was sinful to start, and it was never legitimate in God's eyes. And so, therefore, since since it wasn't legitimate, it was never a real marriage. And divorce is really not a word that should be applied to it. You should be separated. You should quit being together. Um, but it was never a real marriage in the first place. And it's the same for this. I think that does kind of ignore the fact that homosexuality is just condemned. Whereas, Period. Yeah. Like, there's no instance where homosexuality is, is right with God. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There are instances where marriage is right with God. In fact, yes, God commanded marriage, right? The, the key problem with that point is that homosexuality is not a marriage. A marriage is one man, one woman for life, right? Jesus established that. God established that. Genesis 2, that's like the first law that there is, is that that's, that's what a marriage is, is one man, one woman for life. Homosexuality does not fulfill that, uh, that requirement. Therefore, it is not a marriage. So does all of that thing. It's not a marriage anyway, like, it never was in the first place, and so you cannot then say that that is an example of a marriage being dissolved and a promise being kept. Um, no, because you were never married in the first place. If you've promised to take care of that person, right, if you've promised to provide for that person, you should keep fulfilling that promise and provide for them. But that does not look like living a homosexual lifestyle because that is sin, and that is not marriage, and that has no bearing on this conversation whatsoever. Uh, very different prospects, I believe. Mm -hmm. So um, keep even those bad promises that you've made. Uh, big question about Jephthah here, and we're going to wrap this up. We're right past an hour. Jephthah makes a promise, and he's kind of the classic bad example of making rash promises. Don't make rash promises. Um, he promises, God, I'm going to sacrifice the first thing out of my doors when I get home, if you let me win this battle. God lets him win the battle, and then his daughter comes out, and he's like, well, and then he kills his kid. Okay, not great. That's not, not a good thing. Um, and so should he break that promise? Yes. I would at least argue yes, because mm -hmm. God straight up condemns human sacrifice yeah. in, in the old law. Yeah. Like, that is something that they know they should not have done. So I would put this more in, like, the homosexual marriage category where, like, that's mm -hmm. that's just wrong. It's wrong in every circumstance. Yeah. Yeah, even to keep, even to keep that promise, that would be sinful of itself. And so you have to break that promise, which is the one-time sin, but it's better than sinning every time you do something else, right? Uh, it's better than the, the permanent stain of sin that keeps coming up. So, uh, I know that people say sin is all the same. It's not all the same. Lying and murder are two different things. Um, murder is clearly worse because uh, you can lie and do terrible things, and you can tell huge lies that murder tons and tons of people, and that would be worse than one murder, sure. Um, but breaking a promise, not as bad as... Uh, taking a life. Especially the life of your own kid. Especially the life of your own kid. Not to condone breaking promises. And he would have to make sin sacrifices and purify himself before God 
and repents and, and do all those things. We are making the distinction between but, bad and worse, not good and bad. Yes, yes. And so Jephthah put himself in a bad situation, which implies he should do the lesser of the evils, which is, in this case, breaking a promise instead of murdering someone. Um, in the instance of a, a second marriage you shouldn't have entered in the first place, the lesser of two evils is, I, I believe, is staying in that marriage, is making it work out as best you can to the glory of God, because that's a promise that you made, and even though it was a bad one, you need to keep your word as best you can. Um, I think it would be more evil to break your word again and to violate that covenant again. I think so. Mm -hmm. So from everything I can see, that's where we're at. Um, I don't know exactly what to do with Jephthah again, but that's a, that's a whole nother issue. Mm -hmm. So basically, to sum up, we're at, we're at an hour and five minutes. That's good. Don't make hasty promises. That's bad. And that includes not jumping into marriage. Don't mm -hmm. marry on a whim. That's a bad idea. Um, that is going to lead you, that is going to make you regret those promises that you made, but you're not able to break them, right? That's the rule. Uh, you cannot just divorce. You cannot initiate a divorce. If an unfaithful spouse divorces you, okay, you're not forced to stay in that. Um, maybe it frees you up from remarriage. Maybe it doesn't. Don't put yourself in that situation in the first place. Don't marry badly. Don't marry on a whim. Don't make those rash vows. Also, uh, I'll throw this in at the end. Don't violate your conscience. Mm -hmm. That's a bad idea, um, generally. Again, conscience can be trained, but generally do not violate your conscience. And so if you do think it's sinful to live in, in the second marriage now that you've come to God and you've studied some things, if you do think it's sinful, you probably need to get out of it, but you need to keep those promises that you made. Um, and so if you promise to take care of the other person, which you did by marriage, you need to keep on doing that. Even if you don't live in the same house together, you still need to work out providing for each other. And Paul says, you know, first Corinthians seven, like don't neglect each other's needs, separate for a while, but then come back together, right? Separate for a while for prayer and for holiness, and then come back together so that you're not too tempted um, that's a mutual decision, mm -hmm. and that needs to be made mutually. If you have a f if if you feel like you need to be separated from this other person, you're going to fulfill all your other jobs, but you just can't be with them physically. Then you need to talk it over with that other person. You need to make that decision in a mutual way. If you if you just make it as a self centered decision, it's a self centered decision, and that's no good. The other person needs to respect your wishes and needs to respect your conscience and work within it, right? That's a Romans 14 issue. Mm -hmm. But as best you can, you need to make those decisions together. Yeah, so I think the bottom line is if you're married, you're a team, like whether yeah. you like it or not. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. any decision you make has to be as a team because you're in it together for better or for worse. So yes. As tricky as those conversations and decisions can be, it is always better to make them together. Yeah. 
And we say this having a pretty good marriage and not having been in a marriage for a long time. You don't time. have to say that with a question. <laughs> I was saying that with like, yeah. Okay, we have a fantastic marriage. I think it's fantastic. Although, it, it like, it's a young marriage, and we haven't been through all that much. And we're still in the proverbial honeymoon period, I believe. That's like two or three years, right? I think so, yeah. Seven years? I don't know. I don't think it's seven years. Seven I years think is three. the problem spot. Yeah, three years, right? It's We're five. still within that honeymoon period. It's seven years. That's mm-hmm. the problem, I believe. I don't remember. Um, and so we're young and dumb, and we don't have all the experience, yada, 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 whatever. Paul didn't have experience being married, and he gave marriage advice. So I feel like I'm still qualified to comment on it. Um, well. We're, yeah. We don't have all this life experience, and your experience could well point you towards something else. That may well be accurate. All we're trying to do is look at what we have and make the best determination that we have. That's what mm-hmm. we're trying to do. Hope we've done it and hope it's something that's beneficial to y'all. Mm-hmm. Is that a good place to end it? I think so. Cool. Make the most of bad situations because every sin causes a bad situation. I say to end it and then I'm just going to go on a monologue here. Um, every sin you commit causes a bad situation and our job is to take responsibility for that. We cannot erase those things, but we can do our best to work within those things. If I lied in the past, it, it my coming to Christ, my repenting doesn't take away those lies that I have said. I have an obligation to go and clear those up. I have an obligation to quit lying in the future, but I cannot take back the fact that I have said those things. Same thing here. If you get married wrongly, you can't take it back, but you can do your best to live in a godly way, uh, and I believe that's honoring the promise that you made. And so, even if you've married badly, uh, take heart. There is still hope for you, and God is merciful above all else. So, work with Him as best you can, and do the best you can, even when the situation is terrible and bad. Any last words? No, that's a good, good final thought. If you have listened this far, thank you. <laughs> we appreciate it. And that is an awful lot of dedication. Hopefully there is there is a lot in there. Hopefully it's helpful to think about whichever side you fall on this issue. If you want to further discuss this, if we need to hone in on an element or two, just let me know. I would love to um, have further conversations. I think this is something where we look too minimally um and we restrict ourselves to passages to to matthew 19 essentially we restrict ourselves to that and we lay down the rules from there um, without considering the context without considering the bible as a whole and sometimes we even forget to examine the whole character of god and so hopefully what we've done is open it up a little bit show some principles from all over and give you some things to think about further questions, email me, let me know. I'd be glad to answer them. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.